When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today's guest is a good friend and one of my idols, Demi Moore. After reading Demi's new, incredibly vulnerable and brave memoir, Inside Out, I felt like I knew her on a completely different level. I finished the book on an airplane and cried. We talked about why it can be hard for us to know our own truth. We talked about making room for our feelings and also taking responsibility for them. Demi explained why she believes everything is happening for us and not to us and how she's come to see her own challenges as opportunities and even gifts. We all find things that we hide in. I don't know, maybe it's just part of our conditioning. We live in a society that is very celebratory of our doing as opposed to our being. And I was thinking today about, you know, this idea that we, you know, tend to think of ourselves as human beings getting in touch with our soul. And the truth is we're souls who are going through a human experience. Because if we weren't in a human experience, we'd have no reason to be here. I'm very excited to share this conversation with you. Let's get to Demi Moore. How's it all been going? Good, I think. And it's interesting because you had said to me that you started writing the book eight years ago when you were in a completely different life, but you had agreed to write a memoir. Exactly. Not actually nine years ago at this point. So it would seem at that point you maybe weren't in a place to write such an honest memoir. You know, the idea came up to do it. I think I was in a place that was so lost within myself and it, in all honesty, was like, well, this is something for me to do. It didn't feel really comfortable. I didn't really have the confidence that I had anything to say. I did know that there was something about my story with my mother to my daughters. I knew that there was something unusual there. But the idea of exposing myself Everything about that just, like, I, and I was approaching it already with kind of that invisible but palatable resistance. I couldn't even really look at anything that was going down on paper. So I can't say that when I had the reason to put it on the shelf that I was sorry for that. And it would have been a different book. I don't know if it would have been bad or if I would have avoided being honest, but you can only be as honest as you're able to be to yourself. And I wasn't yet really able to be honest at all. It's something that I find 
very fascinating. I mean, I, I think, you know, as a woman, obviously my experience of it is as a woman, but I think it's really pervasive in human beings, like the ability for us to not know what our truth is at any given time, like to be, I will say, I do think women, I think we have the tendency to push it down more like our truth, because we're so busy serving other people. We're so busy trying to make everything right. And yes, absolutely. So how did you get in touch with that voice? Well, I think if you don't consciously get in touch with it and keep looking at the things that, you know, you know, or show up as either limitations or, you know, a disturbance, you know, some type of upset in you, then it will, it will find you. And I, I really think that, that it, it came to me and it came to me in a form that was really stripping me of everything that I identified with myself from a, an external perspective. Motherhood, my wife, my, career. Every, all of that, which I think I write about, you know, in the book about it, it, it like being my very toughness, the thing that kind of got me through life was almost the thing that like took my life. Yeah. Invincibility. Like it took so much to knock me down to say, you know, enough is enough. And part of it was... You know, I went after all those things that we are kind of conditioned to believe we should want. A family, a career, you know, a partnership. And when everything I knew stopped working, I mean, you either have to go in or get out. And I don't think leaving the world was really an option. But I definitely hit a point where I wondered what, what was the point mm -hmm. anymore. I mean, the, it starts with you seemingly at rock bottom, the book. Yep. Would you say that was the rock bottom of your life? Yeah, I think that, the, yeah, it is. Like that definitely was the most devastated place I'd ever been. At least maybe the most devastated place I've ever consciously been in mm -hmm. because I think part of the collapse that occurred was everything from my entire life that had been just put on the shelf or put in storage, <laughs> all the fears that had been, you know, blasted through and ignored all just came spilling out. It's sort of a gift looking back. Definitely. I mean, I, I really, I think like you, we both, you know, look at, at challenges as the opportunity and gift that they are. And even at my lowest point, I feel like I kept, I kept holding on to, you know, what is this trying to give me? What is mm -hmm. it trying to give me? Not what is it taking away? And it felt like I had lost everything. Because the girls weren't speaking to Girls you? weren't talking to me. That's so hard for me to even imagine just because I know you all together. I, and I felt as baffled. There was part of it that there was no logic that I could find with it. I mean, I understood certain upsets that they might have been having, mm -hmm. but that's stuff that maybe is a month or could be a, a few weeks or even a few months. 
and some of it even very age appropriate. Some of it I knew based on my behaviors that had alienated, but three years was something. And I do think that parts of it are still not entirely logical to, to any of us. Right. But it was part of the process. And I know that in a certain way, I had been responsible for someone else since I was a kid. Yeah. I, it was the first time in my life that I wasn't focused on somebody else, like somebody else's schedule, you know, working myself around like what we were doing based on the kid's schedule right. or a husband's schedule or work schedule. And when somebody said, you know, well, now you get to do what you want to do. I said, well, I don't know. I don't know what that is. I don't know how to, to choose for myself. To be totally honest, I don't know if I would. I mean, my life right now is so full of responsibility and other people. And it's really, it's sort of terrifying to think about, you know, like what if everything was stripped away? How did you begin to, like, I know that you're, you're, you've always been a seeker. And so it makes sense that you would relate to this rock bottom as an opportunity. But what, what were the steps that you took? Like, how did you start to pull yourself out? Well, let's see. Part of it was I could recognize that every conflict that was existing reflected one, had one common denominator that it reflected, and that was a lack of value of self. And I didn't quite know exactly what that was, like you were saying at the beginning, like recognizing the truth, I, you know. And when the last piece of, the, of what was kind of propping me up went, which was my health, it, I mean, I was doing therapy. I was in therapy. I was in there exploring. I was looking at all that. But I think when my health went and they couldn't quite figure out what it was. And I was having these headaches that went on for like two weeks. And I, I just really was surrendering to like, I, I, I'm ready to try anything. What I did know from being a kid who had kidney issues that I couldn't go another round of steroids and antibiotics, and that there had to be something else. And through asking everybody I knew, I was given the gift of being told to go to see Dr. Habib Sadeki. And that really was a huge game changer for me. It really was the first time, well, first of all, it was the first time anyone was able to identify in my blood what was happening and really, like, you know, which I, I knew, but you still want someone to say, yes, I see it. You're not making this up. And then the process has been now a little over four years. And most of the work I had to do was what he refers to as the psycho-spiritual work. And it was that inward journey of unpacking every misunderstanding, misperception, and misidentification I held against myself and others. And it was a slow process. And I was so used to like, okay, I understand. I got it. Now let's go. Let's, <laughs> I want to move through this. And in a way, 
in the same way because the autoimmune made it that I literally couldn't do anything. Like if I were to leave my house and say, go to lunch with friends, that might take me out for a week. And so I literally was forced in every way imaginable to sit still and just be with myself. And what was that like? I felt empty and alone, but oddly not lonely. And I think because I could just do what was in front of me. I went to a yoga class of kundalini yoga. My friend would pick me up because I couldn't drive. I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't read because my eyes weren't focusing. I couldn't digest food. I, so I literally, I just did the most minimal amount. I did the yoga class in the morning. I came back. I would have, you know, an IV every day, uh, you know, of vitamins and homeopathics. And that was pretty much it. It was a time, I think, of also being deeply depressed mm. because I just didn't have any answers. I didn't know how to be still, but I couldn't do anything. It's not like I could, let me just focus on work, right. you know, because I didn't know how I'd feel today, day to day. So then I couldn't make a commitment because then what if I couldn't show up? And I think it's true of a lot of us who, you know, I think it's really our culture doesn't teach us how to process trauma or pain very well. So we grow up, you know, sublimating and we get to a point where it comes up and out or or it doesn't. We get sick. In your case, it was both was happening. But I think, too, like for women who are survivors, the busyness that's created is like this incredible layer of protection. You have so much focus, drive, responsibility, you're moving forward. And it's an incredible defense mechanism, right? Yeah, completely. And I was stripped of all of it, all of it, nothing. And everything, everything was saying to me, you have to learn to value yourself with oh nothing, nothing. That's not how life is. You can't, I had had enough of, of wonderful successes and my family, my daughters. Like I had had the taste, the beautiful, beautiful, delicious taste of all of it. And it said, but what is it really? Like, are you enough? Who are you? I didn't know who the fuck I am. I don't know. And I didn't know for a while. There were points when I didn't know if I would ever get that answer. I didn't want to leave my house. I didn't want to face someone one more time saying, so what have you been doing? And not have an answer or know how to like value that what I was doing was probably the most important work of my entire life. Absolutely. We all find things that we hide in. I don't know, maybe it's just part of our conditioning. We live in a society that is very celebratory of our doing yeah. as opposed to our being. And I was thinking today about, you know, this idea that we, you know, tend to think of ourselves as human beings getting in touch with our soul. And the truth is we're souls who are going through a human experience. Because if we weren't in a human experience, we'd have no reason to be here. Yeah. And sometimes I just started to wonder, like, what, what would it be if I started to look at it like that? That I'm really, I'm already the full, complete, whole soul. But it's this human experience I'm needing to, to learn from. 
part of the fascinating, I mean, the book is, you know, I, as you know, I love it so much. And I was really fascinated by and upset by the relationship with your mother. It was difficult to imagine you being raised by a woman like that, especially because your, my experience of you is so different from that. And obviously as you're growing up and you're trying to grapple with who she is and then there's so much resistance in who she is and then, you know, you go and have your own daughters. And I think something that struck me so beautiful is that through your healing process, whatever you were able to heal with your daughters sort of transgenerationally went back and healed almost your relationship with your mother. It did completely. I mean, there were some interesting layers that... You know, as I went through, one of those parts where, you know, you hear people say, you know, you really need to, like, forgive and you do that or it can make you sick. All of those, which I do think are absolutely true. And I had a lot of justification for my upset and anger, the choices I made with my mother. But what sat inside me was moments of such sadness of missed opportunities where perhaps I could have done something different Mm -hmm. with her. Like moments when, as I was going through, even in editing the book, and I thought about what if I had just given her the job to be the grandmother? Would that have made a difference? And maybe I did and I'd forgotten, but I felt such pain Mm -hmm and compassion for her on a new level that I, I think I had forgotten. And then I really realized that how can I expect my daughters to have compassion for me Right. if, I'm, if I've forgotten it for my mother, regardless of what she did or didn't do. Like how I, you know, hold her is what fills and informs me and gives my daughters the ability to love me deeper, love themselves deeper. And I almost felt this enormous relief and gratitude at being able to feel real love for her, which I don't think I'd had in a long time. It's crazy because we are so binary as human beings. And it's almost like a trick of the devil because our parents are these deified, ginormous presences in our lives when we're little. And their humanity is so wounding to us. And we grow up and, you know, if you, what you resist in them or what you sort of say, like, I'm not gonna I'm not going to go there or in your case, you know, cause I think we all have things like that, but in your case, you're like, I have to cut this woman off for my sanity and my health, which makes complete sense. The tragedy there is that because we're so binary, like whatever good is there, even though the out, the bad is outweighing the good in that time, we're disconnecting ourselves from like the beautiful aspect of your mother, the you know, adventurer and the, you know, that whole part, it's like, we're like, no, I'm hurt. Goodbye. I'm closing the door. You know, I'm cutting this off. Like what's safe, what's not safe. Yeah. Yes. And then as adults, we realize we can't escape that. Like we can't, you can't 
cut someone off and not deal with it and expect to be healed from it. Like it stays with you, you know, it's like you have to almost, and this is what's so beautiful about this aspect of the book. It's like you, even though you weren't where you are now, you still at the time had the wisdom to be like, I have to go back into this. Like I have to face the disappointment, the pain, the anguish that my, that I perceive this woman gave to me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back in and I, and you know, again, I, and I don't know where it came from, but you know, it's sometimes just trusting those signs, those messages. And when I heard she was sick, my first re- response was that it was a trick, right. that it wasn't true. And, and then, you know, when the reality of it set in, there was a piece that I knew that it was just what I needed to do and not to question it and that there was something that was going to be there for me and I didn't know what it was. And I was so grateful because I did get more of her than I would have had had I just let our estrangement be our 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 defining, final right. and defining, you know, uh, relation, part of our relationship. And you know, there's a lot of aspects of of how I've held my mother that have that I realize have held me back. You know, she hasn't held me back. I've held myself back. By relating to her like that. Yeah, by seeing, yeah. you know, whether it's my shame or embarrassment or looking outwards at other people who have, you know, their their mother as a prominent guiding, you know, figure in their life and feeling the lack of that. It's all of that's on me. You know, she didn't do that. Just like in the moments when she passed and I was flooded with this awareness of everything that was mine Mm. and everything that was hers she took with her because there was no longer this physical being to project it towards. It was all mine. And I could feel the innocence of her soul that came in not wanting to be a disappointing Mm. mother or... uh, you know, or a bad person or, a, you know, somebody who betrayed. She wanted, like all of those things we all want, she wanted to be loved and feel that she belonged, feel that she mattered. So sad. <laughs> it is sad because, but at the same time, the wisdom that I got from it is that because she never got over not being loved. She was never able to bridge past and see her mother for the woman who was struggling to do her best to manage taking care of, you know, three small children and a husband who was injured. Like she, she took that personally that she, that something was wrong with her. And it is sad that that wound was something she never was able to close. And then we just cope on top of the wound. You know, we just find ways to cope. And she did. And she internalized, you know, whatever shame and projected whatever need into like having to make this relationship with my father work. And, and I can see now continually like different layers of that generational pattern that I picked up Mm -hmm. about, you know, not, not being lovable. Yeah. How I took that on outside of what my own experience in this life is that somehow I carried, carried that on. Yeah. I think we do that. It's imprinted upon us, you know, it's it's so strong, the mother imprint. 
hundred percent. So how have you gone about changing that for the girls? First of all, the more I am willing to open up and look at the things that I fear most about myself, the more I pull it out to look in front of me, however that works, because we literally have a buffet of options <laughs> <laughs> available, we, you know, and not, there's no one way that works. So with this buffet, there's, you know, so I don't necessarily think the way I've done it is the only way. And I think everything that I've kind of explored has informed and helped in some way. But really getting in there, the simplest thing I can say is the amount of judgment I hold against myself is it it's been so much you know that it's suffocated me like it's it's limited my room to move it's the fear of somebody seeing all of those things of me and the more i pull that out and the more that i move towards that compassionate self-forgiveness Mm -hmm. That really, you know, like I didn't even want to look at the little girl in me. It was almost like I couldn't afford to have that kind of vulnerability or what I saw as a potential weakness that could exploit me. And now, you know, the more I'm trying to pull it forward so that I can really look and say, Where's the confirmation that that's true, what you think about yourself? Where is it saying that's true? And, and shift how I am holding that and really move towards the forgiveness of anyone that I feel has done something against me, you know? And as I do that, as I shift how I hold it, they automatically shift. Yeah. And I don't even know how that all works, except I do believe that everything is energy and that what I do shifts and informs them. And, and it's never about what we say. No, I think it's very helpful. If it would be very helpful if you could articulate how you do that, because I think that for so many of us, when we feel wronged, like, here's the empirical facts. Like, someone did this to me. They, they cheated. They lied. They stole. I am worse off. I'm devastated. What is the process of truly forgiving that person? Like, how do you change the conversation? How do you change the energy so that that... Well, part of it is, you know, I've been... Is it accountability? I think, but I think it's also, we have to shift the perception first. And the shifting of that is, you know, we're very conditioned to be in a society of good and bad, good and bad. So if I like vanilla, chocolate's bad. But the truth is vanilla is vanilla and chocolate, chocolate. So the disturbance or upset that occurs from something for you is you. You, you create the disturbance or the upset. It's not the event or the person, if that makes sense. So if it's what the person does, you could prefer that they didn't do it that way. But the event isn't what's upsetting me. It, what's upsetting me is how I'm choosing to hold that. I think f for me, 
if I look at something not going my way or how I would really prefer it to go. What's irritating me is that I'm projecting that it should be a certain way as opposed to it just being what it is. And that doesn't mean I can't allow the feelings of upset or hurt. I just need to then let that hurt and upset and go in and see where that is and take care of that for myself and not make uh, the assignment to the other person have to be that they're bad or that what they're doing is against me. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I think it's... It's a difficult concept to understand, especially like take infidelity. How, how does one experience the aftermath of that and shift how you hold it, shift how you hold it? Well, one, it's a process. And I think, you know, if you take back the threads of where the upset you might be feeling it's always because we're assigning to it a value. And the value is, what is this saying about me? Right. What is that action of infidelity saying about me? That I'm not good enough, that I'm not attractive enough, I'm too old, I'm too this, too that, and I'm not lovable. And if I step back and go, well, why, A, am I giving the power of that action that is really about the other person. You know, the other person's actions speak more about them than it does you. And it takes, I think, a process to dissect that. I mean, and I can only speak for myself. I had assigned a value in my situation that was so devastating that it somehow meant that I would never be loved. That, I, that, that it was over for me, that, that no one would ever love me, that, that not only, like, like I am essentially wrong as a human being. I am broken and unworthy. His actions came out of something that was hurting inside of him. And maybe he didn't communicate that hurt in the best way he could have, but that wasn't about my value. It was a reflection of his value. And it takes, I think, time. And it's, that is not an overnight process to get to. But I can step back and look at that with compassion for what that can be for someone else in that situ whatever situation it is. That's very evolved. <laughs> I think part of it, though, is you have to give yourself room to be angry, to be upset, to be hurt, to be wounded, all of those things. You have to have the room for that. It just isn't, I think it's just, you just don't need to make your wound or your upset have a blame. It is accountability. Right. I think the biggest trap that we live in is needing to find a blame or a reason for something happening. It's because there's nothing we can do about it. Let's say I blame somebody and say, you know, that was horrible and it was, okay, that is the end of that. What else can I do with it? 
if I look at it in another way, then I can unload that backpack of heavy-duty rocks and move on. And also maybe get some growth out of it. I mean, I think staying in that consciousness of victimhood, I was wronged. There's no, no self-exploration comes out of that. Definitely not. And I do believe everything is happening for us, not to us. I mean, I think it's like looking, I was having a conversation with our beloved Habib yesterday, and he was talking um, and used the metaphor of fertilizer. That, you know, that the... It smells like shit. It smells like shit at moments, but it's actually going in and enriching, you know, to help it grow. And I I loved that. That's a good one. And it's a way, again, of, of, you know, moving through it. I think there's some, you know, deep processes also. I've recently been doing some work around giving a voice to those places that are hurting inside of you. Mm-hmm. you know, and giving loving to those places that are hurting inside of you. But giving a voice to sometimes even physical pain so that it can inform you a little bit. So you bit. say out loud? It's like, actually, it's more like kind of going in. Mm-hmm. And if you have someone there who is just, you know, listening for you, it's going in and even silently asking a, the, a question of, what is it that you would like to say? And whether it's a pain or, a, you know, a hurt, whatever part of you, giving it a voice, it might really surprise people what comes mm-hmm. up. In the same way, going in and asking your inner counselor, like, to give you guidance, guidance that you might ask another person, but that is actually already within you. When you can strip away the emotion of it being you, right? Yes. And you can sort of connect with... Almost in a, you know, almost in a, like a, a gestalt kind of form where you have that ability to separate yourself and go to that deeper, inner, higher self that, that actually holds the wisdom for us. I don't know. It's been a help, very helpful recently. What blind spot did you see through this process that surprised you? That's a a blind spot. About yourself. Like, oh, wow, I never realized I was this or I did that or I participated in that way. Like, was there any blind spot that you encountered that surprised you? I don't know if there was anything that like super surprised me. I I I think it's you know it. What's always so interesting is how the layers keep coming, and there's new information as you keep digging through, and when you think you've gotten everything from something, and I think one of the things in that sense that I had for so long that I didn't belong or that I was kind of on the outside, not really part of. You know, that misunderstanding that I'm like somebody that, you know, they're just, I don't know, not obligated to, but, you know, like they're throwing me a bone (laughs) and (laughs) this feeling. But I think it's a long way of saying that the part of me that was so afraid to be rejected, that was blocking out letting people be there for me, particularly women. I, like because the the fear, it's like I can't even identify the fear because it's so pervasive, of of not being enough that it that it blocked me 
from trusting, it seems like, or... Definitely trusting, but it blocked me from... It's like you were saying, you know, when my armor has done such an amazing job of protecting me, but it also has kept out so much Mm. good, so much of, you know, the blind spot, not so surprising really, is being able to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's such a big one. That that one in any form, like really being able to not have it figured out, not have the answer. I think my judgment of my mother being needy, as I perceived her as being needy and what a burden she was, held a fear in me that I didn't want to ever do that because I could feel the discomfort it created in other people. Right. And when I experienced that it gave me such shame and embarrassment that I then have carried that into which situations that have nothing to do with any of that and have kept me from really being able to receive all that's been there for me. How has your relationship with women changed, if it has? I think it's changed tremendously in a way that... I have friendships in a way that I've never allowed myself to have. I've always felt like that I was a a girl's girl. Like that's, you know, and, but for some reason I didn't like, like, I don't know. I just didn't feel like I could take up space until I was invited in. And now, and now I can sit with it in me that I just feel more part of. It's not entirely gone. I'm still, it's a work in progress. And I, I think that realization of, I always knew that I had some issues with men, but I never really fully embraced that I had issues with women. And which you would think would have been obvious. Well, I think the men ones are more obvious because we engage there and it impacts our lives in such a huge way. It's like you make a strange or bad or, you know, a choice in a romantic relationship that ends up, you know, causing a lot of damage. And with women, it can sort of be more subtle. Yes, very true. How I was going to ask you about your mother. And then of course, which I didn't know that your father was not your biological father until I read this book. How much do you think that impacted the kind of relationships you were seeking, romantic relationships? And also... Your parents, I know they were fucked up, but they had this kind of insane romance where they could not stay away from each other. Like the pull was so strong. That was such a fascinating element of the story. Like they could not stay away. I know. It's like, you know, couldn't live with each other, couldn't live without each other. You know, there was a, like, like there's a part where I feel like I was born into a lie. Right. And that energy... I think was always present. I just didn't know what it was. But you could feel it. I could feel it, which is why I think I was able to intuit what it was when I turned to my mother that day and asked. I didn't know, but I knew as soon as I said it. But I think that was a, the real you know, foundation of, like, is it okay that I'm here? I think, you know... I found out only as I started to do the book that, and again, my parents were kids. Yeah. So 
I, I try to always understand that, that, you know, they were 18, 19 years old, that my dad had had this idea that my mother would go back to Texas, where my actual biological father and his family lived, have me, and then come back to him. And he had sent her off without being the plan and then panicked and realized that if once she had me, she would never come back. And so sent her a bus ticket and money to come back, of which she did. But I think his shame, perhaps, I don't know, he's not alive, and I didn't know that part of the story. Perhaps that's a part of why he never wanted me to know. I think my parents' relationship, uh, definitely my dad, you know, it, it affected all of my choices. And, you know, I see my dad as my dad. And he, although he's not my biological father, and there were things where I was so much more like him than even my mother, that we had a, a certain connection. And, you know, it was devastating when... I, after I found out, not that I found out because it didn't change how I felt, but he was never the same with me. And that was devastating. Oh. And, you know, so much of that was really the incredible pain that he was in. I really feel like, you know, the there's a part of, I think, my concepts about relationship that became... I don't know, not to get attached, to not not give all into it, that, you know, it's that it's always going to be in flux, that there was nothing about it that seemed stable or right. had any kind of constants to it, you know. I think that's why in my last relationship, so much that I recognized and had not really fully given myself, that I really wanted to do that to really give all of me, let someone really see me. Mm. And I was doing that, which was part of also why I was so devastated. But again, because I hadn't dealt with all of those other aspects of my fears of not being lovable, that then opening myself up caused me to cling and grip so tight. Anyway, that's a long way of answering. No, I don't know if that was too long-winded. Not at all. <laughs> Are you kidding? It's so fascinating. And I think it's such, it's such, the book is such a gift because, because of how, you know, the, the level of detail that you look within, you know, you have all the circumstances of your life and all the facts and you piece them together, but the meaning, like the deep, deep meaning that you're able to you know, put this puzzle together, it acts as such a template, I think, for the rest of us. You know, any any woman that has ever felt unworthy, unlovable, shame, confusion, like you putting yourself forth in that way, you know, especially, you know how we are in society, a woman that we hold up is like, oh, she's perfect and she had everything. And, you know, your willingness to show to bear your humanity like that is so astonishing and so beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Before I wrap up, I have to ask you some fun questions. Okay. <laughs> like 
Well, first of all, before I get to my fun questions, uh, so do you feel ready for the next phase of your life? Do you feel different? What it, What's next? What are you looking forward to? I do feel different. And I feel like I'm really trying to stay present because of living so long where I felt like I did so much but didn't really experience it, trying to like already be going ahead. I'm really trying to just stay in the present, be open to see where I can, you know, be of service. What's, you know, where I can, and also where I can find the most joy and fun. Yeah. And so I'm not quite sure where that is yet. That's amazing. I love that. I need to be more like you in that way. I plan to still plan too many fucking things. See, I need to be more like you. And I need no. to I need to plan a little bit more. No. You know, no. you're so decisive. I'm so terrible at like last minute I am last minute Lucy here. Um, what else? Okay, so what is your favorite movie that you've ever done, meaning like you're in bed and you're flicking around and it comes on and you're like, okay, I just have to watch this for a, a minute. I think one of the only ones I can really watch probably is G.I. Jane. It's, it's the best. It's the, it's the only one I feel like That's I can, re- it's the only one I feel like I can watch that I'm not so horribly critical of. Why do you think you're not critical of that and you are of others? I don't see the... I don't know. I think there was something... You're so baller in that movie. I, I, I think there's something that's so outside of me, the whole, you know, the transformation. I think everything that I gained from that internally, like things that I learned from it about how men operate and how women operate and, you know, my ideas of strength and... I don't know. There was just so many things that, you know, it's just obviously I don't walk around. It's not how I am or look. No. It's fun. What was the most, what was the movie that was the most fun to make? Surprisingly, this little teeny movie that I just, that I I did, you know, last summer, Corporate Animals. It was literally by far one of the most fun. I have, I can't wait to see it. It's so, the movie is so weird and the, I don't know what the particular alchemy was of this group. I mean, I didn't know anyone except Who else one, is one actor, it? a young actor. Uh, well, Ed Helm is, uh, it's his project that he also produced. Jessica Williams, Karen, Sony, Dan Bakata, all this, like I, uh, all of these like comedy people and then me and we got down there we're shooting in a cave a created cave and I don't know why somebody had offered you know had sent me a message saying oh you know Alma the hugging saint is gonna be in town and we were in Santa Fe New Mexico and I don't know why I went to everybody and said hey I don't know if you guys might be interested but Alma the hugging saint is coming I thought maybe one or two would come they all went. Like, I think there was, were there eight of us? Wow. We all went to meet with her, and it was such an amazing experience. And we ended up doing everything together on our days off. I, I, like, we don't, you don't do that very no, often, right? That's so fun. It was so, I mean, nobody made money on, I mean, you know, <laughs> we didn't do it, it, but there was something actually really 
tender and sweet like, and genuine. That's so nice. I'm going to see it ASAP. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with the sage Demi Moore. If you haven't already, pick up a copy of her memoir, Inside Out. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.